Hello and welcome to Cloisterbell Podcast. Today we are revisiting the ninth Doctor story, Boomtown. We're having a look behind the scenes and we hear what you have to say. The TARDIS Cloisterbell. Imminent disaster. The Cloisterbell? Yes. What's that? Well, it's a sort of communications device reserved for wild catastrophes and sudden calls to man the battle stations. That's the cloister bell. Don't worry about that for now. It's not really terribly significant. The cloister bell? Oh, no. Uh, hello, everyone. Uh, I'm Rob, and I'm here with Liam. Hi, Rob. Hi, everyone. Hi, everyone. Um, for anyone who doesn't know us, we are Rob and Liam, two Doctor Who fans who live in the northeast of England. Fairly close to each other. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> and today, of course... We are revisiting Boomtown from 2005. Uh, we'll quickly play the trailer. And I was having such a nice day. According to intelligence, the target is the last surviving member of the Slovene family, a criminal sect from the planet Rexacorical Falpatorius, masquerading as a human being zipped inside a skin suit. This nuclear power station right in the heart of Cardiff City will bring jobs for all. And it just so happens to be right on top of the rift. If this power station went into meltdown, the entire planet would go... Go on, and run! It's the rift. The rift's opening. The whole city's gonna disappear. Time and space are ripping apart. To remind Cardiff, it's gonna rip open the planet. How are you doing, Liam? What have you been up to? Have you been watching anything new? Uh, well, um, if I remember those questions. Uh, yes, I'm doing quite well, thanks. I uh, hope you are as well. In terms of anything new, um, I've been going a bit m- book crazy recently. Um, book I'm crazy. I'm not quite a keen reader, so there's, there's not, nothing new. But um, so Because I've, I've been reading quite a lot of you know you know some history and philosophy books and it gets a bit much i just i just want to read something which is just enjoyable so um you don't enjoy that stuff well no, no i do but you know what i mean you just want to pick up you know just enjoy something um which is a good story and just enjoy the story and not not having to navel gaze too much about it so um i've been wanting to read uh the novels of stella remington um for quite a while because i've been aware of you know because uh, I, I quite like political thrillers crime thrillers that type of thing and just in terms of picking up a good book and just you know and enjoying the story uh and i've uh i've already read her first three novels they're not bad they're quite good just nice and uh, enjoyable stuff i bought some um i haven't read frederick forsyth um so i bought some of his books which is um you know people are probably aware of the movie adaptations there's the day of the jackal uh, which is famous, and you've got the Odessa Fire, which was his second novel, which there was a f- uh, movie adaptation of that done, which uh, starred Mary Tam in it. I've seen the movie, but I haven't read the novel, so I'll be finally getting around reading that. Um, season eight Doctor Who box set finally arrived. Uh, Yay! So, yes, so, on, on yes. time. Yes, because it but, was March eighth. It was due. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's actually really good. It's. So, in the podcast for the Happiness Patrol, I mentioned one of the things I was looking forward to was seeing how they've updated the special effects on Terror of the Autons. And uh, they've done a really good job. Once again, it's it's very sympathetically done. It's just there to um, 
not make the original special effects as jarring. It you know it uh, it doesn't feel like too in your face modern. It's it's very nicely done and it, it um, and some very nice surprises uh, in there. Behind the sofa is really good, especially because you got uh, Sasha Dewan uh, involved in that. So he's watching Roger Delgado because one of the things he always said that when when he was cast as the master, he never he didn't really want to go back and watch his predecessors. Because he didn't, you know, he wanted to make the role his own and not be so heavily influenced by what I've got on before, which makes sense. Um, so really, he's he's now, you know, we're pretty much seeing him watching Roger Delgado for the first time. It's really nice just to see his his love of the show. He's so, I, I mean, you know, he's so proud of, and right, you know, totally, uh, it's totally understandable. But it's really nice to see he's so proud of uh, of the role he now plays in the show and it's continuing that legacy which began in the 1970s and um he loves Roger Delgado's performance and um it's it, you know it's just great to see his his appreciation of the show um oh, that's nice. yeah that so that's really good there's a really really lovely documentary on uh Terence Sticks you know remembering him mm-hmm. and the impact that he had not only in terms of Doctor Who of course but his impact as a writer his legacy in literature and the impact he had as as influencing writers. It's a really, really lovely, touching uh, documentary. I enjoyed that one an awful lot. And then there's Matthew Sweet interviewing Katie Manning. Um, wow, that's... I mean, it, it, it's an interesting interview um, because there's... You, sometimes Katie Manning is obviously very forthright in her answers and tells you, you know, answers the question uh, fully. And then in some instances, she just gives you little hints about, you know, aspects of her life and then holds back on certain stuff. But my goodness, um, the, I mean, I, ne- you know, I, I never knew anything about Katie Manning and, you know, um, you know, finding about how she grew up, the education that she had. She's been childhood, you know, she, she remains friends with Liza Minnelli. They've been friends since they were kids. Um, you know, it's like, wow, she she went out with Jimi Hendrix for a period of time. You know, she's just had this amazing life, and it was it was really nice to to find out more about her outside of of Doctor Who. I mean, obviously they talk about they talk about that as well, but um, it's like wow, you know, she's had a oh, she's a had a watch. really interesting life. Yeah, she had a uh, she had a very lucky escape. Um, she was in a very serious car accident, and this is back in the time obviously when they didn't have seatbelts. Uh, so the car that she was in, the, she was in the passenger seat. Um, it slammed into uh, a petrol station. Uh, the two the two people in the back were fine. Uh, the, the The driver was fine, but she went through the the car window into into the uh, the window of the um, of the petrol station. Um, she needed major surgery. It's absolutely amazing, you know, um, that she survived. Um, but it was during her the course of her recovering from that that's when she decided i think she was 16 at the time that's when she made the decision to become an actress ah so she's quite young yeah yeah um so you know great job with the the restoration of of the stories and uh the special features are just immensely enjoyable they're great yeah is the set still available to buy do I don't think it is. No, it's not. Well, certainly not on Amazon, because uh, that's no. where I purchased it from. 
And on the day it was getting delivered, so that was the 8th of March, Monday the 8th of March, I um, I was, uh, I was, clicked on the link to, to track it, and then I ended up clicking on the link to take me to the product page. Completely sold out. And that was the day of delivery. Yeah. Um, so that's the, the thing with these. I mean, if, if, you, if you want them, you know, it's... You've got to pre-order them. Um, yeah. I wonder if there'll be a digital reissue one day in the future. I hope so because it, it, I would, if you're into Doctor Who, and this is something that you really enjoy, but obviously you don't have the money to do it. I mean, because it, you know, I mean, you do get a lot of bang for your buck, but at the same time, you know, it is a lux, you know, a luxury item, and this mm-hmm. box set, I think, was, I think it's the the most expensive so far. Pretty much, uh, how much was it? I think just shy of fifty pounds. So you know that's oh, quite nice. a you know that's a that's a bit of a chunk. So mm. if this is something that you're likely to enjoy, but you haven't got the money to you know to purchase the box sets, I I, I would like it to be made available to to others at some point in, in some form. I think that would be quite nice. Mm-hmm. It may be a few decades though, mate. <laughs> uh, of course, they're all available on BritBox now. That's the only accessible way in the UK to get them all in one place. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know they might not be on BritBox forever the digital landscape's always changing and so is the nature of um, the BBC you know mm, that might not mm. be around forever no. and and the property of that is Doctor Who who will own that, that IP one day who knows yeah there's a lot of I mean that's the thing I mean in general I, I, I do much prefer having the physical product so you've got something in your hand and you can enjoy the, the physical product in terms of the artwork and all the rest of it Plus, you own it; it's there in person. That is one of the problems with digital ownership, because you know you, you're making a purchase, but really, you, you you don't own it. It can be taken away at you know. Um, it can, especially if it's um, um, games, for example, or or movies that are on a on a service that you don't download, but you've you've paid for them, mm-hmm. and you paid to access them. What happens when that service goes? Yeah. Um, and you've paid it, then you know it might be a long time, but yeah, it's gone. <laughs> Since we last recorded, I finished WandaVision on Disney Plus. Uh, I went back to watch one of the older shows, Agent Carter. I watched both seasons of that, mm-hmm. um, which I quite enjoyed. But Marvel's Falcon and the Winter Soldier starts this Friday, so that's gone for six weeks before the Loki shows out. So. Plenty Marvel to be watching. Um, I think tomorrow, Zack Snyder's Justice League is out. Oh, okay. Is that something you've been paying attention to? No, not really. It's uh, um, yeah. Well, to be perfectly honest, so uh, and I, I, in terms of television, it, it tends to be. You know, I'm I, I'm really sort of like going through Blu-rays and stuff like that in terms of television. I'm not really I'm not really watching that much if I'm honest. Um, and previously, because we've talked about you know how I've been going through Fra- Frasier, that's sort yeah. of I mean it, I, I love the series, but for some for some reason I've kind of just that's sort of slid slid a bit, and I, I, I'm not really watching it anymore for some reason. Um, Plus, obviously busy with work, I suppose, and as I said before, I'm sort of bl- blitzing through as many books as I can at the moment. So yes, right. we go through phases, don't we? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, on with Boomtown. 
The Ninth Doctor and his companions, Rose Tyler and Jack Harkness, travel to modern-day Cardiff. Well, we'll say modern-day, mid-noughties. <laughs> and they meet up with Rose's boyfriend, Mickey. There, they discover that their enemy, blonde Felfoch Passimir de Slitheen, is very much alive and without an easy escape route from Earth, and is willing to rip apart the planet to ensure her freedom. So, in essence, uh, it's a sequel to the previous two-parter with the Slitheen. Uh, it's a completely different formula. Uh, cast and crew for this episode, Doctor Who, as he's credited, not just the Doctor, of course, played by Christopher Eccleston, Rose Tyler, Billy Piper, Mr. Cleaver, William Thomas. Now, he's an interesting one because you could kind of consider this episode a bit of a backdoor pilot for Torchwood. The actor, Mr. Cleaver, also plays Gwen Cooper's father in Torchwood, Series 2, and Miracle Day. Oh, yes, he does. Yes. Yeah, 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 right, he does, yeah. Yeah, we'll we'll talk about his character in a moment, um, because he's actually in the first scene. Mm -hmm. Um, He is also the Undertaker from Remembrance of the Daleks. Yes, he is. I was watching when I was watching the episode for this podcast. It was bugging me because I'm I'm looking at him, going, "I recognise him, I recognise him, I cannot place him." Yes, you're right. I can. Yes, he is. So, is he the first actor from the classic series to come back into the new? I presume so. Mm. Not the only. No, no, not the only. But I wonder if he's the first. Probably. Yeah. Margaret or the Sladine blonde, played by Annette Badland. Uh, we met her in. 2015-ish. Was it the first convention that we went to or the second? It was the second. Ah, right. Yes, I think it was 2015. Yes, we have met her, yeah. Yeah. She was a lot smaller in person. (laughs) It's uh, it's an odd thing to say, but it's just my first impression. Like, wow, you know, she's smaller than I imagined. (laughs) (laughs) She was really nice. Oh, yeah, she she, she was lovely and... um... It, it was nice to to hear her talk about... I mean, because she, she was only in three episodes and uh, of Doctor Who, and um, that was, you know, back in 2005 in, the, in that first uh, series with Christopher Eccleston. But she still has an awful lot of... Um, she had an awful lot of affection still for it and enjoyed her performance in it. Yeah. It was quite, and it was quite... I mean, because she is a very good actress and she, she certainly played the part incredibly well. Um, and it was quite nice, not in a not in a, a boastful or arrogant way, just in a nice, pleasant, recognizing your your self worth type of way. But she's, you know, she she was proud of her performance as well, which was it was just nice to see. Again, probably one of the reasons she she came back for the second one. You know, um, mm-hmm. she was obviously appreciated, and she also appreciated the whole uh, the whole gig. Captain Jack, of course, played by John Barrowman. Ricky, played by No Clark or Mickey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Kathy, played by Mally Harris. She was the the kind of reporter that came in. Idris Hopper, played by Aled Pedrick. He was the the mayor's secretary. <laughs> and uh, Sladeen Acton in the suit, played by Alan Rousseau. Episode written by Russell T, produced by Phil Collinson, and directed by Joe Ahern. Uh, he'd previously directed Dalek and Father's Day. And then he went on to direct Boomtown, 
Bad Wolf and Parting of the Ways. So a significant portion of Series 1. We'll go on to looking at some of the physical releases before we move on. Um, the series, well the episode was released on standalone kind of vanilla DVD, if you, if you like to call it, the, the first release without the special features. It was released on the standalone box set with just a stereo soundtrack. Later on it was released as the complete first series on DVD and subsequent formats um, with the addition of a 5.1 surround sound soundtrack and commentary and confidential cutdown. In other media, there was a publication in 2005 of the shooting scripts, a very nice, very thick, substantial hardback um, retail just shy of £20 and it had a the script of every episode in the series with a foreword from Russell T Davis. The complete script to Boomtown with accompanying screenshots and photographs was in there. Um, the book refers to series one as the 2005 series. I do remember that floating around for a while especially on the the website, the official website because there was no designation of it being called series one at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just the 2005 series so that's a, a piece of merchandise if you like that doesn't uh, doesn't call it series one <laughs> in the shooting scripts Russell D. Davis explains how this was intended to be a cheap story for the series I'll just open up the book see if I can just paraphrase some of the things there's a there's a two page write up from Russell T. Davis um, we had tuppence for this show we just done World War Two and had the final battle of the time war to co- time war to come so money had to be saved somewhere. But then he goes on to explain how his idea kind of evolved from there. And um, Phil Collinson phoned him up and he said, I thought you said this was cheap. And he says it is. And he replied, there's an earthquake in Cardiff. <laughs> <laughs> so his idea did spiral a bit. It was meant to have zero effects in it. And um, even though you can... Would you consider it a, a bit of a lighter or a filler episode? Would you call it anything like that, Liam? Um, Just from your point of view? Well, my point of view, the I, I suppose if someone would describe it as such, uh, I could see where they were coming from. Um, Is it in any way a half measure? Well, right, okay, I'm going to have to tell you a story. Going back, Going back into the mists of time in 2005, picture this. When the show came back, obviously you and I were, because you know we'd been fans uh, for for many many years at this point, and we were looking forward to it. Um, my sort of in, my excitement of the show kicking in um, didn't start until two weeks before Rose was broadcast, so it uh, it took me <laughs> it took me a while, and then um, so Rose was broadcast, and I thought you know that was okay. Um, I thought it was a reasonable story. The end of the world I liked. I thought it was. I thought it was much better. Not perfect, but it was a step in the right direction. The Unquiet Dead was much better. I really liked that story. So I thought, you know, it. Um, I thought as the show was progressing, it it was slowly getting better. It still wasn't quite my cup of tea, but I could see it getting you know better and finding its feet. And then Aliens of London World War Three happened. And I didn't like that. So that's the, so. First of all, that's the story that introduces us to the Slovene, 
I didn't think it was that particularly great a story. I thought the structure was a bit odd. I didn't like the fact that Doctor Who was now resorting to flatulent jokes and all that. I just thought that all of a sudden the series just fell in quality. And then from that point on, I mean, keep, I mean, I was a teenager at this point. <laughs> um, I was just coming out because when I was a teenager, you know, it was quite uh, everything had to be terribly serious and work, a bit odd because. When I was a teenager, I was massively reading James Bond, but that's beside the point. Um, everything else sort of it had to be serious and had to have worth. Um, so I was a bit, uh, you know, <laughs> a bit pretentious. So I was just coming out at the end of that when when Doctor Who came back, and then that that episode landed, and I just thought, oh, this is ah, don't like it. At the same time, though, because I was in sixth form, Doctor, you know, it was a big deal that Doctor Who. Uh, had come back not only for fans but it was a dig- it was a big talking point in general the advertising was everywhere it was a show that people were talking about but in my experience with my social circle being in sixth form was that yes people were talking about it but it wasn't in glowing terms people were ridiculing the show so when rose was broadcast i remember my friends talking about how the autons were just stupid now i like the autons you know i'm talking about from Spearhead from Space and Terror of the Autons. But then, you know, when, when my friends have seen a story introducing the Autons for the first time and they have a burping wheelie bin, <laughs> it's a bit difficult to defend the idea and actually the execution can be quite good. And then as the series was progressing, I mean, because even, even our teachers were talking about it. I remember the English teacher, Mr. Potts, he did not like the story Dalek for a number of reasons, but it was interesting because he had very strong memories of watching Evil of the Daleks, the Patrick Troughton story, when he was a kid. And he, you know, and he wasn't a fan, but he liked Doctor Who. And then he was watching Dalek, and this thing was just going, and Dalek contradicts Evil of the Daleks. So you were having all this, and then I was just having major problems with this. You know, I didn't, I didn't, you know, so you had the Aliens of London World War Three, which I didn't particularly like at the time. The long game, I thought, fell flat on its face. And I just couldn't deal with the show anymore. So when Boomtown was originally broadcast, I didn't watch it. Uh, frustratingly, though, the episode that I didn't watch, when I went back into school the following Monday, all of a sudden, people's attitudes, attitude towards the show had changed. There was something about Boomtown that people really, really liked. And all of a sudden, people were now going, I can see what Doctor Who's about now. And I can see how it can be really good. And, you know, people just seem to be talking about Boomtown and really... And I went, bloody typical. The episode that I missed was the one that, was in, in my sort of social circle, that was the episode that seemed to change people's minds about the programme. Um, so I've always had that in the back of my head. And so I didn't watch Boomtown until many, many, many years later. Uh and just to show, I've forgotten exactly when, but by that point, Matt Smith was the Doctor. Um, so by the time I came to, to watch Boomtown, I had this memory of that this was the story. Yes, I was aware that Russell T. Davis had written it as a story to save money for the series. Um, but I remember maybe there was something special about it. So to, to sorry, I've gone around the houses and answer, answering your question. So going back to the question that you asked, which was, um, you know, do you see this as just sort of uh, sort of like a filler episode? Um, yes and no, um, but but not f- not fully because I've still got that thing in the back of my head that in 
you know, people. I was just aware that that this is the episode that seems to change people's opinion about the show. Um, I mean, I think when you're watching it, and certainly when in general, but even when you can when you compare it to the rest of the series, you can tell it's the show that has a smaller budget. Um, funny enough, you know the thing that really sticks out with me with regards to that. What's that? It, it's Captain Jack's costume in this series. Uh, in this episode, sorry, I don't know what it is. I don't think it's dated particularly well, and I don't like it, and I think it just looks cheap. But anyway. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's got different tastes. Yeah, he's yeah. a man out of time. My perception of it, whether or not it was a filler episode or a, or a cheaply made episode, I didn't quite get that, because I was kind of caught up in the drama, mm. or the, the very grounded human drama of it. So um, I thought, well, this is just, the direction of the week so it didn't come across as a half measure to me um i wasn't in any social circles my age at the time so um not to any extent where people many people were talking about it uh people were but they didn't have a massive opinion about it um so i was qu- apart from like people online which was very specific corners of the internet at the time i didn't kind of get many people's opinions on the show and or that episode in particular um so it doesn't have any kind of stigma in my mind to being either good or bad Mm -hmm. and i and i just i quite enjoyed it at the time Mm -hmm. Um, so that's kind of my memory there was another book that was published called the inside story it was published in 2006, and it was in the very same format as the Shooting Scripts books. In fact, if you put these two hardbacks on your shelf, co- shelf continuities there, you know, that was kind of the, kind of a successor, but it was a behind-the-scenes book, um, specifically for Series 1 and 2, but it did have an, uh, like an episode guide for Series 1. It was described as the definitive guide to the making of the new series, um, inside, four pages were dedicated to Boomtown as part of the Series 1 episode guide. And it details that Boomtown was recorded at Q2 Studio Newport. Uh, Bistro 10 was the diner that they were at, uh, Mermaid Key, Cardiff. Glamorgan House, College Road, Cardiff. Cardiff Railway Station, Cardiff. So, any uh, location spotters out there... <laughs> There's a few locations that it was uh, filmed at. Mm. It shows Matthew Savage's detailed concept art for the the tribophysical waveform macrokinetic extrapolator that he'd drawn <laughs> in on the 18th of January 2005. It gave the viewing figures for this episode as 7.69, um, which was kind of just above the mid-range for the series. In fact... It was higher than the finale because Bad Wolf and Parton of the Ways was kind of mid six million. Oh, so, okay. unless p- this episode put people off, <laughs> who knows? <laughs> the director Joe Ahorn talks of how he was asked at short notice to direct the story. He says he loved the script, and it was a lot less technically challenging than the previous episodes he'd done. Um, apparently, while they were shooting. The Millennium Water Tower uh, caused some issues with the sound team um, as it was very noisy. And the scene of the Doctor and Margaret walking down the pier to the restaurant, the wooden deck was very clunky and noisy. So that had to be 
more or less completely redubbed, so there was a lot of sound issues that came after production. But it comes across as a uh, quite clean. Yeah, yeah, it does well. In that case, the 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 people who were involved in the, the the sound for this episode should be immensely proud of themselves because they managed to cover all that up. Because sometimes when you're watching something and um, and sometimes this can be sometimes it can be really high end drama with you know with pretty much all the money in the world thrown at it. But sometimes you're aware when you're watching something dubbed. Yes. Uh, and y- you forgive it, in a sense, because y- you can, you understand the necessity for it. But at the same time, it takes you out of the viewing experience because you're, you know the sound doesn't quite add, add up or what have you. I certainly wasn't aware of any sound issues when I was watching it. So, you know, they did a, they, you know, they did a very, very good job. They definitely did. There is a bit of a, a humorous one where they obviously... Um, took things into consideration and uh, in the restaurant this bistro 10 where Margaret and the doctor are dining during the earthquake the the other diners there had to only kind of mouth and mime their screams just to be added later <laughs> even the conversations uh, so yeah not that, that's quite normal the... as I understand it in uh, television productions yeah yeah but um, it was to mask um, it was to protect the the practical sounds of the glass smashing, which happened, uh, which actually happened, in the scene. Ah, right. Okay. So, so, um, so yes. Not only did they have to, during post production, they had to lip read the mime and conversations <laughs> and try and come up with something, try and figure out what these get extras were saying. <laughs> right. Okay. And dub in the conversation <laughs> that kind of matched it. <laughs> it was all guesswork, and then uh, of course they did. Yeah. Silent screams. <laughs> I hope I had some fun doing that, though. Yeah. <laughs> Boomtown was written after Aliens of London World War Three had been made. So, yeah, it's interesting how, how production works on television when something can be produced, but the the end product isn't uh, hasn't even been conceived yet. <laughs> yeah, d- did you say before that um, the director for this story was allocated in January 2005? Uh, well, no, that was actually the concept art. Oh, the that concept I mentioned art. That date. I'm not sure about the date of the the allocation for director, but he had previously directed um, Father's Day and what was the other one I'd said? Well, two previous stories in the series, and he was scheduled to return for the finale. Mm. Uh, yes, yeah, so, sorry. So that was it. I was getting mixed up with the uh, with the production artwork. Ah, right, so okay. the production artwork, so the designing the episode in January 2005, it's broadcast on the 4th of June. So I know this goes into, you know, this was a, a relatively, you know, last minute story to be written. I've always known that, but that's the, that's a very fast turnaround from allocating the production crew, designing the story, um, and then filming it, and then getting the finished article in ready for the broadcast date in only a few months' time. Yes, and also Annette Badland, who plays Margaret, she had long departed the show after filming the first two-parter. So it was Russell who conceived this story and asked her back. Uh, She was actually filming something else, but they made a compromise and got her kind of split between the two productions. And it turns out, had they 
knew originally that they wanted it to come back, um, it probably wouldn't have even happened because they would have just said, oh, well, she's booked for this. We can't do it. So the nature of it all being produced so late, the way it kind of went along and evolved, Mm. she was available to come. So, um, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> it's funny how these things can work out. That's uh, that's really that's uh, really fortunate. The TARDIS landed by the water tower intentionally because of what Russell T. Davis had in mind, as he quotes, about where Torchwood was going. Ah, so right, the, the okay. seeds the seeds are there. It's not just an incidental kind of backbone for Torchwood. Mm-hmm. Um, he obviously had something in mind. <laughs> so he says. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, there's no reason. There's no reason for him to lie. I mean, although some people don't need a reason, but I can't see Russell T. Davis lying about this. It would, yeah. it would why? That's really interesting because obviously at this point, then it was seen by a lot of people as a big gamble to bring back this show. No one knew if it was going to be deemed a success or not. Obviously, they're they're giving it their damnedest and hoping that it is, but no one knows if it, you know if people are going to tune in and love the show. I think we forget that now because it seemed to come back. It was reasonably successful. It came back with David Tennant and then it just skyrocketed into popularity. We forget in 2005 that, you know, it's still early days. People don't know really... Because we've seen it with uh, with other things before where an amazing film or TV series can be made. Uh, you know, it can be absolutely amazing. But for some reason, the timing of it or whatever... But it doesn't get the audience, and then it's not mm. followed through, and, and then that's it. That's the end of it. Um, so there was a lot riding on this, and the fact that um, he was thinking about the possibilities of having a Doctor Who spin-off this early on is uh, is interesting. And to, to actually pull it off as well, the mm. following year, yeah, conce- the conception and the writing and the production, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it was amazing because because Torture was two thousand six, the following year. Yeah, that's uh, yeah, it's a very fast yeah. turnaround with an overload. I, even I forgot that. For some reason, I thought that was 2007. Right, as early as that, okay. That's right, yeah. So, all those little facts I was just saying, that is all from the Inside Story Definitive Guide to Series 1 and 2. So, I was glad I went up in the loft today and found those. Because <laughs> it was a few little behind-the-scenes things. Mm. Had you, had you yeah. forgot that you had those? No, I remembered they were there, but I didn't. For some reason, I didn't. I just didn't think that they would have as much information in. Ah, right, okay. So we'll go on to the main story now, if you'd like. Um, and I've kind of broke down the episode in little digestible pieces to discuss. So previously in Doctor Who, uh, in the two-part story, Aliens of London and World War Three, and I said two. Maybe I did say two earlier on the podcast actually as well. The Doctor, Rose and Mickey faced off with and defeated the Slidine. The only surviving member being Blonde or Margaret Blaine, if you prefer, uh, played by Annette Badland. Come to think of it, her performance in this story is brilliant, but she wasn't that standout in the in the first two part. I think well, actually, I think that's probably to do with the fact that she was playing a relatively minor role. She was, yeah. She was just the antagonist, but she was just a facade for 
the actual alien as well. Mm-hmm. So maybe there wasn't there just wasn't enough substance there to um, can draw into the foreground as much. Yeah. And in and in that story, there's there's several Slitheen. She's not the only one. That's right. Yeah. In Boomtown, we are instantly reintroduced to Margaret uh, in the opening scene, six months after the last time we've seen her. So quite, uh, she's done quite a lot in the meantime. Mm. Uh, there she's speaking to Mr. Cleaver, a Welsh nuclear advisor, um, who is investigating the Blyde Drug project. I'll just pronounce that probably awful. Uh, those with a keen eye will notice this actor from Remembrance, as we said earlier. Uh, and on occasion, of course, he's played Gwen Cooper's father in Torchwood. Uh, in my head, um, he is Gwen's uncle. That makes sense. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I'm sure Russell D. Russell D. Davis wouldn't let that connection slip. You know, he's always trying to dry things up in one way or another. Mm-hmm. Anyway, um, he's on to her. She swiftly, swiftly deals with him, and he's dead. So moving on from that, <laughs> um, Mickey arrives in Cardiff, and so he's at the Cardiff railway station. He departs the train, and he looks up to the signs... A bit baffled. Um, I think I've actually pulled that same expression on occasion in Wales. Because <laughs> <laughs> for me, I've, I've probably drove through a hundred times for work and I don't know that I've crossed some kind of border. <laughs> and all of a sudden I'll be reading street signs thinking, what's happening? Oh, yes. <laughs> so you have to kind of acclimatise to that. So Mickey approaches the TARDIS, parked outside the Millennium Centre, what would soon be a very common sight the following year. Jack answers the door, and his presence only seems to make Mickey even more of an outsider. Because <laughs> not only does Mickey have to condemn with the the relationship of the Doctor and Rose, now, now Jack's there and he's even closer to them. So, uh, so yeah, it's a shame for Mickey here. The TARDIS team do seem to have a very close bond at this stage. Um, Jack only joined the TARDIS team at the end of the previous episode, so clearly they've had potentially limitless adventures since then, haven't they? Um, yeah. There's this, this is little gap. Um, I was mentioning to you to, earlier today, Liam, um, the fourth, fifth and sixth books in the Ninth Doctor BBC books range mm-hmm. Would be a good example of that because they do feature Rose, Jack, and the Ninth Doctor. Yeah. In fact, in this very scene, um, with Rose, in response to needing her passport, she does reference a bunch of places. One of them being Justicia, which is from the second Ninth Doctor book called Monsters Inside. And I did love this reference because I was back then in 2005. I was quite quick to soak in all the books at the time. Um, so I did I did like this reference. I was like, wait, did she just reference just this year from the book? You know? mm-hmm. <laughs> the, the, the books are, just, are kind of tying in with this. But that was again just one little reference. It didn't tie in much. <laughs> no, no, but it's, it's quite a nice little reference. It's uh, In terms of some... Because I wasn't familiar with those books. So f- for me, it's... Um, and I'm just watching it. And they're just rattling off these places that they've been to so obviously i'm taking it in the sense that oh these are just it's 
you know, giving that hint that they've had it on previous adventures. Whereas this nice little reference to someone such as yourself who is familiar with the books and it just adds a nice little bit of richness and basically goes, that book that you read, we're saying that happened. I think that's yes. a nice touch. Yeah, there is um, a bit more depth, depth to it as well because the monsters inside, I'm sure I can talk about minor spoilers um, this many years on, <laughs> but um, it was actually a Slitheen book. Ah, right, okay. Uh, and also it um, dealt with um, justice or misjustice and that is a, a bit of a theme or something the Doctor decides to um, deal with later on in this story. Mm-hmm. This isn't the only reference in this scene. Rose explains the nature of the rift to Mickey. bit of exposition here. So she mentions Gwyneth, which was the kind of earlier version of Gwen Cooper. You know, this key to the rift from the Unquiet Dead. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, series one does lay quite a bit of groundwork for Torchwood, because here we have the location of the rift. Eve Miles is introduced as Gwyneth. Captain Jack is introduced in series one. Toshiko Sato from Torchwood is introduced in series one simply as Doctor Sato in Aliens of London. Tosh meets the ninth Doctor in Albion Hospital. The very same hospital that Jack first meet the Doctor in as well. So there's a bit of a similarity between uh, Tosh and Jack's first meeting of the Ninth Doctor. Mm-hmm. Although I've got no clue where... I guess this is a conversation for when we do review World War um, Aliens of London, but I don't know where Tosh kind of... This kind of fits in with her timeline because isn't she kind of incarcerated with a unit? At some point. Yeah, I remember that story. That uh, I remember that taking me <laughs> by surprise, and that was a you know an interesting side of a unit that we'd <laughs> we'd never considered mm. before. That was very yes. interesting. Yeah. 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 Oh, we finally get a name drop to the chameleon circuit. Oh, and so the invisible lift is also born. <laughs> well, there's a, there's pretty much of a an information dump, but I think. Russell T. Davis uh, writes it quite well, reasonably. I think it works really in terms of how Christopher Eccleston reels off and performs that scene, you know. Because obviously in 2005, modern audiences, no one would know what a police box was. I mean, it's interesting that it's sort of the penultimate story of the season where we finally get an explanation. But finally, it's explained you know, what a police box was, the reason why the TARDIS looks like that because the Doctor landed in the early 60s, so it's, you know, it's it's harking back all the way to an unearthly child in that sense, you know, but finally you get an explanation. And I think that works an awful lot um, because of Christopher Eccleston's performance. What I yes. really like as well about that scene, because, I mean, the, the the series, this episode, sorry, I think has a has a nice balance between the humour and the drama. And one of the bits that, that did sort of make me chuckle was... Um, you know, when Mickey's talking about, you know, but aren't people going to notice this big blue box? And then the doctor goes, you know what happens when people see a big blue box, mysterious box in the in the middle of the street? They ignore it. Come on. Uh, I like the line. I think it has a lot of truth in it. Uh, but I, again, I just like the performance of it. And uh, I thought it was quite nice. So uh, Margaret is well established as the Lord Mayor of Cardiff. And she's getting around, um, she's getting this round of applause 
as she says she's demolishing Cardiff Castle in favour of a nuclear power station. Which is a bit humorous, but unrealistic. But, uh, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, A reporter, Cathy Salt, confronts Margaret about all the deaths. Um, This French team couldn't read the safety warnings. They were electrocuted. The Cardiff Heritage Committee was electrocuted um, in a swimming pool. Well, well, I guess they would have um, been there to safeguard the castle, wouldn't they? So uh, the architect um, was accidentally run over by Margaret's car. (laughs) Um, And Mr Cleaver, who we've seen in the opening scene of the episode, slipped on an icy patch and was decapitated. It was a very icy patch. Yeah, it it reminds me of... I think it's the first episode of Blackadder the Third, and there's that whole thing because um, uh, Blackadder is, has got Baldrick um, as a um, elected as a politician, but he's had to do some very underhanded dealings, and it's basically he's also had to commit murder. So all, all his serious rivals, I think one was seriously de- decapitated while uh, whilst combing his hair. Um, uh, another man was brutally stabbed in the stomach while shaving. Um, it just sort of um, this sort of thing. It just reminded me of that, but it's uh, it's it, it's dark, uh, but it's funny as well. Um, That's a good callback to that. Yeah, mm-hmm. I like that. So these two, Margaret and Kathy Salt, go to the toilets to talk further. Um, I feel a bit worried that all this toilet humour. Would have been lost on anyone that didn't see the uh, Aliens of London two partner. <laughs> I remember. I mean, because uh, as I said before, one of the reasons why I balk at um, that first story with the Slovene is because it was, you know, it goes into flatulent jokes, and it's just, oh, for goodness sake. So when we're having this scene taking place in um, a public lavatory, he's just got, oh, for goodness sake, where's this gonna go? But actually, funnily enough, it turns into quite a nice, poignant scene, uh, which takes you by surprise. You just think it's going to be lots of poo jokes now or something like that. As uh, you know, as, as, the, as, the, as, the, as the Slovene uh, uses the lavatory. But um, thankfully, it, that's quickly dispensed with. And we actually, surprisingly, have quite a, quite a nice scene. Yeah. And one yeah, of the highlights totally. of the episode. 100%, yeah. But it's never explained to the audience that it's to do with the compression and the gas exchange. So people must, people could still be left with the th- left with thinking, oh, she really needed the toilet. <laughs> <laughs> Why not both? Why can't it be both? Yeah, but th- this whole scene where, because uh, obviously she's le- she's wanting to kill the journalist because the journalist is starting to ask questions and start to piece things together. But it's when the journalist mentions she's got a boyfriend, she's about to get married, there's there's a child on the way. And then we just have this this moment when, she, you know, um, she decides not to, to kill the journalist for that reason, but she's harking back to the family that she once had and her brothers and so on. So good. And this is a this is a prime scene, prime example of how the music in this episode really helps kind of um, invoke the emotions that you need to feel. Hmm. The soundtrack works great, doesn't it? Yeah. And Margaret kind of decides to save Kathy's life as she shows compassion or even empathy because um, with a need to look after her family and Margaret might be reflecting on the family she's lost. Yeah. So, yeah, it could be a lot of em- empathy there. 
Um, in the diner, uh, the team seems to be having a good time. Jack's telling a bit of a tale. Mickey actually seems to be fitting in quite well at this point. Mm-hmm. Contrary to what I was saying earlier, actually. Yeah, he's kind of joking on with them and chatting. Yeah, Not well, he manages to help, uh, you know, to interrupt uh, Captain Jack's story with with a punchline, and everyone finds it funny. And you know, yeah, yeah. it's a shame we didn't get more of these four. This would have made it possibly better TARDIS team than the Fam. Ooh, interesting. But yes, you're right. Um, yes. I think how they got maybe. I think um, sometimes the way that Mickey is written as the butt of the joke can get a. Is a bit irksome, and it's yes. it's one of the elements of this. So th- th- he's a bit of a bit of a joke later on, when David turns to the Doctor in a s- story like School Reunion. But for so- for some reason, I think the way that it works in that story and the way that it's performed and everything like that, I think it works because I don't think it's overly done. It's just sort of like n- nicely pitched. Mm. A Boomtown. I mean, I don't think it's to the point where it's detrimental to the episode, but I do think it gets a little bit much here. Perhaps. Uh, I don't need to see Mickey running with a bucket on his foot with toilet roll. Oh my goodness, that's the best scene in the episode when he's got a bucket on his foot, toilet roll sprawling everywhere, and he's clunking the bucket around. (laughs) We need that scene. Everyone else is gracefully leaping over things, and he's just... No, no, I get the joke, but the joke has already been done. And then, it, oh, I don't know, I just thought it was a bit unnecessary, but, you know, you, you, I'm clearly... I'm, Agree to disagree. Fair enough, you can't do. I might be in the minority. Yeah. People listen to this podcast going, what are you on about? It's the, it's the best joke in the episode. I'm just going, oh, okay. But, yeah, but um, but it, it's really nice at that moment that, um, you know, that they're clearly, they're clearly getting on. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's really fitting in. Until... The doctor notices the newspaper, mm. which I'd like to point out, he just grabs off some un, some unsuspecting guy, <laughs> and the guy that? doesn't react. <laughs> he just stares off into the distance. He just stares until he looks at somewhere <laughs> off screen. It's <laughs> he's if like, maybe, I'm what? just an extra in this scene. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not. I can't I'm not talk. in the script to respond. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it was. <laughs> <laughs> it was odd. In my uh, head, he was. I thought he was just kind of looking at his wife, like, "What just happened?" <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what would your reaction be? You know, you're quietly just in a restaurant. Oh, sitting in a restaurant. Yeah, probably. I'd probably just turn and look at you with the same expression. Like, just go, "What the hell happened?" <laughs> What's this guy doing? What you wouldn't go? Excuse me, I was reading that. You pillock. <laughs> just stay silent and. Gaze off into the distance. As if nothing has happened. Yeah. I wonder how that was resolved. <laughs> so yes, they result they sorry, they march into City Hall and Jack takes up charge, coordinating the attack. Um it's nice to have a full team, the four of them are lined up, mm-hmm. all with very different strengths, weaknesses. <laughs> Jack is kind of a born leader here. The doctor is the actual leader, so the the authority here bounces back and forward, and the doctor's like, yeah, yes, as you say, a nice plan. It's a good little relationship and dynamic. Mm-hmm. There's no, there's no, um, there's no battle of egos, which we potentially could have had after um, the two part with Jack, couldn't we? Yeah, that's true. So I, I'm actually quite pleased we 
we didn't have that. Um, I think the mayor's secretary is one of my favourite characters in the episode. <laughs> yes, yeah, I agree with it, yeah. Yes. Um, um, he, he goes into the office, and at the name of the doctor, she drops her cup of tea, and she bolts it out the window. She yeah, thinks, I love that. She's just he... having a cup of tea. <laughs> yes. I love all that. It's, it, it, you know, it's, it's very nicely played. It's very deftly uh, executed. And that whole thing of, you know, when, when the secretary's trying to stall the doctor and he's just like, she's climbing out the window, isn't she? He's like, yes, she is. And then, he, you know, the fight scene between him and the doctor, though, is a bit. <laughs> it just seems to be gripping the doctor's shoulders and then they're just moving around <laughs> with, the, with the classic line, leave the mayor alone. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I, I, I do like that, that whole scene, especially leading up to the bit when uh, she's trying to teleport away. But the doctor's just using this sonic screwdriver to quickly zap her down and all that. I, I, you know, I just think that's really rather nice. Yeah, and that was kind of harking back to Cassandra from uh, the end of the world. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. The secretary guy, I think I read he returns in um, one of the Torchwood books. Oh, really? Okay. So his character lives on. Yeah. <laughs> the doctor kind of marches Margaret back into the city hall or whatever it is, and starts to question her motives. And they do conclude pretty quickly that she's intentionally building this power station over the rift mm. um, to send it into meltdown. Jack kind of explains what would happen. It would go... <laughs> kind of like, <laughs> just implode. The extrapolator is kind of elegantly hidden in the diorama on the table. And Jack knows what it is, so he explains that it's this kind of space surfboard <laughs> to the rest of the room. Yes, yeah. Yeah. Is that a prop that you hate, love, or have no preference? <laughs> I have no preference. Um, yeah. I think, I mean, it's sort of fine. It, it sort of, it works because of the, the tone of the episode, but uh, the idea, I think, is a bit stupid. Just this idea that the whole, the whole idea that the Slitheen will be riding this, this intergalactic surfboard. Just the, the yeah. image that it conjures up is a bit, you know, it's a bit, it's a bit so. mad, but... Yeah, we never got to see it. <laughs> Only in our minds. <laughs> so, yeah, and it's got a bit of a technical name as well. Then there's a key moment here. The Doctor stares at the Blythe Droog banner. And at this stage, we see things are starting to come together. The Doctor are starting to join up. It's a clear moment that shows that the series is on track for something, some kind of destination. There's a, something kind of looming this bad wolf presence. Mm-hmm. And at this stage, we don't know what the heck's going on. And a lot of the Bad Wolf, bad wolf references were so subtle that we probably didn't even notice most of them anyway. No, and funny enough, because again, this is one of the things that I missed, uh, because when this was broadcast originally back in 2005, as I said, I missed it. So going back... Everyone was talking about. I wonder what Bad Wolf is, and it was just like, what? What are you talking about? You know, you know this this whole thing about what Bad Wolf is in Doctor Who, and it's just, I haven't got a clue what you're talking about. Yeah. So all the, yeah, so all the references in the previous story had completely went over my head. Even though you're looking back on it, you know, and you uh, there's uh, there's one episode where uh, you see someone uh, spraying it onto the side of a TARDIS. But I think yeah, probably, that was probably one of the more memorable ones. Yeah, but I think probably at the time when I saw that, it was just oh, someone's just you know graffitiing. It's it's a reference to the fact that the TARDIS is landing on a council estate. Maybe I don't know, 
But the fact that it was the words Bad Wolf it just went over my head. So It was actually referenced in the Ninth Doctor books as well. Ah, okay. Um, certainly woven into each one. So the next course of action is to take Margaret back to um, Raxicorico Fadabatorius. Mm-hmm. But she explains that she'll be facing the death penalty. So she appeals to the Doctor's morals, but he believes she should face justice regardless. Mm-hmm. And he kind of maintains this stance. So it's a, it puts um, the Doctor in an interesting place and it's an interesting kind of predicament for us to see. So Jack's hooking up the extrapolator to the TARDIS because not only is it a pan-dimensional surfboard, it's also a power supply. So they use it, well they hope to use it as an alternative power to the for the ship. But as Jack says, it's not compatible, but it would knock like 12 hours off the refuel time. Mm. So he connects it anyway. And at this moment, we see an interested glance from Margaret. Um, and as we would later found out, the extrapolator is a trap. Also, I've got an issue with the TARDIS. Well, it's not really an issue, but the TARDIS has come to the rift to refuel. Mm. Contrary to Doctor Who lore, the TARDIS would have drew power from the Eye of Harmony. Mm-hmm. And during the Matt Smith episode, Journey to the Centre of the TARDIS, or whatever it's called, the Eye of Harmony is still, there is still a presence there. It still has, it still kind of has the TARDIS. Mm. I don't know how that kind of fits together with the TARDIS needing to fuel up. I think it's, I think it's just a, a plot point for the story. Obviously, it, it affects maybe some sort of continuity, but, uh, it might but not necessarily. People, yeah. I'm not really, I'm not really fussed. By doesn't it. bother me. No. It was just a, a thought that I had. <laughs> mm. But um, yeah, doesn't bother me, doesn't bother you. It's fine. <laughs> um, Rose points out that the police box is actually a police box now, as it's housing a prisoner. Mm-hmm. Um, so that little explanation at the beginning kind of comes back on where the whole explanation of it being a police box. So that reference was relevant in this episode. Yeah. But Margaret corrects her by saying, um, you're not just the police. You're my executioner. So Rose is clearly a bit unsettled by this. Um, as perhaps she's never had a direct hand in killing someone in this way before. So this is a great scene for Margaret as she kind of stares off the room. So she's the one. She's the prisoner here going to her death. And she still kind of maintains this power stance mm-hmm. where she's kind of stood over. So it's a great scene. And she's kind of like fondling this ball. <laughs> That's part of Sorry, yeah. she picks up this ball from the TARDIS and I remember something from the commentary I was actually going to try and watch the commentary before watching this but I didn't have time but I do remember Russell D. Davis saying uh, she did just pick it up <laughs> in the scene it wasn't in the script or anything And uh, but Russell T as, you, as, you, as you'd imagine he believes it's like part of the TARDIS as well so it's like she's kind of like holding on and violating part of the TARDIS I think ah oh, okay <laughs> So Mickey's had enough. He goes outside to get some fresh air from all the atmosphere inside. Um, and Rose joins him, admitting that she didn't really need her passport. Mm-hmm. So be- because um, Mickey came out at the start of the episode to bring her a passport, so she didn't really need it. 
Um, so he kind of invites her for a meal and then kind of carefully asks her back to a hotel for the night. And she seems kind of up for it. So there's kind, oh, of, a ha- yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's kind of a happy moment for Mickey here because, after all, she basically ditched him for someone else. So obviously, he must be a bit confused about where they both stand and where Rose's feelings are. Mm. You know, does she still feel... Are they still a couple or or not? Uh, you know, it's, it's a bit confusing for him. So this must be momentarily kind of a bit of clarity for him there. So, yes, yeah, a happy moment for Mickey where it lasts. <laughs> Margaret asks for her last meal as a last request mm-hmm. to sit with the doctor. Dinner in bondage. <laughs> she, she makes a few attempts on his life at the meal. Mm-hmm. Possibly a bit weird since she needs him to return her to the TARDIS anyway. But I kind of like the whole poison through the lungs and all that. Did you like that? Yeah, that yeah. Too? I mean, for me, I think this is the best scene in the episode. I love uh, the whole scene in the restaurant. I just think it's again, it's probably what Doctor Who can, does really best. It you know it can it can it can go from the ridiculous to the serious uh, really quite effortlessly. The, you know, there's a lot of humor in this with the way that um, she's trying to kill the Doctor, but. He, you know he's constantly aware of it um and it's just played really deftly it's it's really nicely done and it's just an absolute delight to watch and then later on as these scenes progress you know the, um it gets back to the point which is that if she is to go back to her home planet um she will be killed is the doc you know because of their uh, their judicial system is yeah. the doctor willing to uh, therefore hand her over so it goes from you know, quite fun shenanigans Big contrast, to, yeah. to actually getting to the, the, the nub of what the story is about. It's uh, it's really well done. Yeah, in the same scene, so the humour is put aside and then we'll have to deal with um, the issue of the execution. Mm-hmm. But the, the I, I really like the way that it is written, directed and performed because when you're going from these total shifts, you know, any lesser production or performances, you know, you would you would see you know the shifts in gears and it would be quite clunky but it just seems to effortlessly go from one to the other it's very smooth it's 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 handled very well they do debate the final details of the doctor delivering the law here mm-hmm. because he's going to can hand her in and margaret pleads more as she tells tells him how she saved the lady earlier in the story this kathy so the doctor analyzes her and says how saving one could be to make up for all the other countless killing. Mm. So he's trying to make a point here. But then Margaret kind of clocks that he's not simply analysing her. Possibly unaware, he's empathising with her. Because he's a killer too. Mm-hmm. She asks that she be the one that he lets go. And he probably, I think he probably realises, yeah, hang on, you're, you're, she's kind of right here, you know. I am the killer, but it's not, but a different kind. He's not a kind of merciless killer like like she is. <laughs> yeah, it's good how that scene kind of um, comes. This re- there's a there's a how do I say it? Yeah, there's kind of a a reflection between the two of them. Mm-hmm. So as Margaret begs for her life, Rose um, kind of tells Mickey about um, some cool places that she's been. 
And then he just kind of blurts out the fact that he's been going out with Trisha Delaney, you know, from the shop. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Poor <laughs> uh, <laughs> so Trisha. This kind, of, <laughs> this kind of kills the mood instantly. Because mm-hmm. Mickey suggests, like, you should find that hotel now. But <laughs> kind of Rose soon shoots him down. Mm-hmm. So you go, yeah, what about what about Trisha Delaney? Delaney's like, oh, yeah, I suppose. So um, Rose strikes back about Trisha. But then Mickey strikes back too, pointing out that uh, at least he knows where Trisha is. <laughs> who's actually in the wrong here? That's the that's the kind of Rose thing that's up in the air. And uh, no, it's Rose. It is Rose. <laughs> and now he doesn't even know where he stands. You know, it's a very confusing time. <laughs> mm. Um, so that it's a bit of a toxic situation. So yeah, the whole story's full of conundrums and debates. Um, Mickey is kind of desperate he, he's asking for clarity clarity on their relationship mm-hmm. then there's a noise in a large quake so poor Mickey when Rose kind of runs off and he he's, he, he kind of realises in his head yep yeah, when it comes down to it it's the doctor that you kind of care for mm-hmm. so Rose is in a uh, Mickey's in a bad place here I mean it's not it's not the end of um, the narrative for Mickey's character, you know, the, this Boomtown's just the curve point in Mickey's character arc, you know. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a low point for him, but it's not the end. Yeah, yeah. The rift begins to open above the TARDIS. Jack and the Doctor are frantically trying to fix the situation when Margaret grabs Rose hostage in exchange for the extrapolator. And she reveals that she counted on someone using the extrapolator, but she never counted on the Doctor. I wonder if anyone else would have came along. Who knows? <laughs> if the Doctor hadn't come along. Yeah. Um, so, finally, the TARDIS reacts. Of course it's going to react to being destroyed. So it reacts to the effects of the rift. The console opens to reveal a light. Who knew it opened? Um, so, the heart of it's the heart of the TARDIS. This energy inside, like nothing we've seen it's not the same, but the time I was trying to draw a comparison, it was a bit similar to... Okay, we saw this gold energy in the cloister room coming from the Eye of Harmony in the movie. Yes, yeah, yeah. The same kind of TARDIS energy. So it's not the same visual effect, but it's very similar, this gold flare kind of thing that comes out. So Margaret stares at the light, um, and I kind of wonder to what extent did the Doctor know was was going to happen. Um, Margaret seems to understand and she thanks the doctor so the situation's kind of resolved there um, she's, she vanishes leaving only seemingly her skin suit behind um, so the team manage to close the rift and they speculate what happened to Margaret and they discover the egg in the aftermath of the quake Rose runs out to look for Mickey and he stands in the distance um, watching Rose in the shadows um, and then he kind of walks off into the night. So that's the last we've seen of Mickey for now. So yes, Rose returns and they kind of stand around this egg that they find. So they plan to you know, return it to the hatchery. I'm Rassicographalipatorius. Return the egg. They say it'll be a fresh start for Margaret, or Blonde rather. To which Rose responds, yeah, that'd be nice. So she... She'd like a fresh start from all, from all this uh, that she's been through. 
the way that I read Mickey. That, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was going to say because at that point, you know, she's kind of reflecting on Mickey and realizing that what he said was true, and you know, he deserves better and have a second chance. That's her really reflecting on that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, not her life in general. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yes. And that kind of wraps up the episode. Mm-hmm. So neither the time nor space podcast said it's an odd one. The whole refueling the TARDIS with the rift makes little to no sense. And um, then it's all downhill from there. To think the previous episode is the Doctor dances. It's a huge drop off. Marty said, "The moral di- the moral dilemma is thought provoking. We can sympathise with Margaret just as much as we can the Doctor. Something Russell T Davis is great at." Margaret's, Margaret's escape virus space surfboard is somehow so ridiculous and endearing that it's, it's almost plausible. John Lane said, A much better story than the two-part that introduced us to the Slitheen. I think we can agree on that, Lane. Um, the moral quandary and an up-close look at the idea of justice provide weight. And the diner scene is pitch perfect. Plus, Mickey gets his say at last. Also... The TARDIS console opens. It opens. It opens. <laughs> yeah. That was kind of my response. <laughs> the Doctor Who Show podcast said, um, at the time of transmission, I would have said bad without a moment's hesitation. In the years since, I've come around to the story. I don't think it's a work of genius, but if the choice is good or bad, then I say good for sure. Mm-hmm. that's a good one oh yeah make sure to follow and listen to the Doctor Who show podcast at thedwshow.net I'll do a quick shout out to neither the Time Nor Space podcast who did the first comment follow them on Twitter at Time Nor Space pod check their thing out Christopher Brett Hall said bad granted I haven't seen it since and the whole meta gag about bad wolf makes my teeth itch Sorry if I pronounced this wrong. Nikephoras said, This one really sticks with me as an anti-Doctor Who episode. The villain gets defeated halfway through, and the episode doesn't have the money for anything except letting the companions goof around with each <laughs> other um, for the rest of the time. Which is a lot of fun. Mickey is a bit whiny, but the audacity of this episode to have such a blatant deus ex machia at the end as well as such fun set pieces as chasing the Slovene um, and the diner conversation just completely wins me over to the episode. Lots of fun. Not much else, in my opinion. 7 out of 10. I agree with about the day ex, ex machina. Um, yeah. I'll get onto that when we do our summing up, but yeah. Yeah. And that thing about the the villain defeated halfway through, it does kind of... And that's one of the ways this episode is unique. It does defy a storytelling formula in that respect, I guess. Yeah, it's you something know? quite mm. new, and I, you know, I like it. And I think it um, it lends the episode, as you as you're basically saying, uh, its own identity. And and but it also allows it to explore its themes in a different way. Um, <laughs> and I wouldn't say, strictly speaking, I mean me personally, I wouldn't say strictly speaking that the villain is defeated halfway through the episode. Um, because she does, um, she does have a plan. And yeah, she, she does she, become she a does, threat in the final scene. 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, she does have a plan, and you know, there's a possibility she may convince the doctor to let her go. So there's, a, you know, there's that going on. So it's not, it's not fully one thing or the other yet. I mean, don't get me wrong. Yeah. I can see where they're coming from when they say that, but. And also, I wonder how the story would have played out if it wasn't for the quake and the trap. Hmm. I wonder if the Doctor would have handed her over. We'll never know. Doctor Who S17, is that season, season 17? Uh, said, one of my favourites. They could have kept that foursome together for a couple of seasons and I would have enjoyed it. See, Liam, that's what I said. Better than the fam. Yeah. Never <laughs> thought Miss Badlands could, could have played the the quarry in a chase scene as successfully as she did. Then that diner scene with the Doctor. Jason Thompson said, It seemed like a filler episode to me at the time. With a paper-thin plot and a deuce ex machina ending, once I could rewatch it knowing it was coming, I was able to reappraise it a bit. It's still not a favourite, but it has a lot to like. Seeing the four of them just enjoying lunch together was joyful. And the comedy is done well. Yeah, yeah. The moral debate between the Doctor and Blonde works because it doesn't quite come to a resolution. Even the ending makes sense. Of course the TARDIS is going to protect itself. I don't think it did Rose and Mickey any favours though. Mickey seems a bit too whiny. Yeah. And Rose comes across very poorly as it appears she just she just called him up for a bit of fun and gets offended when it turns out... Um, He's trying to get on with his life after she ran away from him. Yeah, I agree with that. I think, uh, see, that's what I said. It's Rose's bloody yeah. fault. She needs to get a grip. <laughs> uh, Mickey needs to yeah. dump her and get on with his life. The uh, Married to Who podcast said, I'm always quite happy to watch this episode. Noel Clark really gets to show off his, his comedic chops and we don't need to talk about his dramatic acting in this. Eccleston and Badland are great, duh. And Rose and Mickey come across as huge pricks. Hashtag justice for Trisha Delaney. Fraser Gregory said, it's magnificent. At the time, it was like a lot of what Russell T. Davis did in the series. Took over the Doctor Who I knew and loved and gave it a subtle twist and brought, a bang, brought it bang up to date. I love that it wrapped up the plot halfway through and became a morality play. Russell T. Davis then let us spend some quality time with our characters. We get to see them breathe and eat and shine. The ethics and scruples of the Doctor had never before been put under the spotlight like this. And I remember really enjoying going in this direction. Sadly, it gets overlooked due to being sandwiched between two more flashy two-parters. But this is Russell T. Davis at his absolute best. When he focuses on the characters and makes us think about them, it's truly a great piece of drama that should get more love than it does. If anything, I've come to appreciate more over the years as a prime example of what the show can be when you try something a little different. Mm-hmm. So yeah, possibly a good example that the show needs to be a bit more daring from time to time. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, that's the thing. It's... Um... The show has always thrived when it try. Well, not always, but for the most part, has always thrived when it tries to be daring and do something new. It's the reason why the show has lasted this long. It's never, it's never sat on its laurels. I mean, even if you go way back, if you compare season one to season two, and I'm talking about when William Hartnell was playing the Doctor, 
there's already massive progression between those two seasons and then you know that's the first two years of the show um yeah. and this is just another uh you know it, it works very you know it works surprisingly well as we said uh given how late in the day that this story was conceived written produced and all the rest of it um i think it works surprisingly well um it is going to look a bit pathetic uh, when you compare it to, and this is going back to what one of our um, commentators said. Um, if you compare it to the, you know, the previous story, you know, uh, the Empty Child, the Doctor dances, and then this, it it is going to pale in comparison. But um, taken on its own merits, I think for the most part, it's successful. So, a quick conclusion and score. Uh, I've been a bit conflicted about this. Um, maybe I was just apprehensive to give him a genuine opinion on it because um, for years I wasn't aware of all the um, the conflicted feelings, the the love, the hate specifically. <laughs> right. Okay. Yeah. But I really enjoyed it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It it wasn't. It's not a formula that the show should be every week. Mm-hmm. It's unique. Yeah. And uh, I sat down and I really, I really soaked it in. Mm-hmm. And afterwards, I was ready to move on to something, a, a, something that was a different tone. So I, I just have to be honest. Um, I give it a ten out of ten. Wow. Because I thoroughly okay. enjoy it. Yeah. That, no, that's really good. Okay. I give it much lower than that, but. Um... I still like Boomtown. I want to make that clear. It's a very enjoyable story. I will more than happily watch it again. Uh, it's very easy to uh, to watch. I like the style of it. I like the humour of it. It has a nice light touch to it. Um, when the episode uh, does, ha- you know, beds itself down a bit with the, with the drama and the theme of, of justice and so on, uh, again, that's handled really well. You're not. It's not hammered home in a heavy way. It's just you know it's it's just relishing in the idea of how it can tell how it can tell um how it can tell the story um the it's not perfect the biggest problem i've got to say is how the matter is resolved i do think it's a bit of a cop out given everything that was discussed how it was revealed the conversation between uh blonde and the doctor um uh, I think it would have been quite nice had the story ended in a way where a final decision, regardless of whether you know the Doctor t- does t- take her back to her home planet or not, I think that would have been um, a much better conclusion. Uh, I do think it is a little bit of a cop-out that the way that the, the story just wraps everything up um, with... Uh, maybe. Blonde. Maybe, what, maybe there was the point that... Um... The doctor could never kind of pass someone off and fulfil justice because ultimately it all it'll always come down to a, a conflict and defeat. Is that a constant in the doctor's life? Yeah, maybe, but I mean, <laughs> but yes, it is a cop because if, uh, if you're if you're recognizing that justice needs to be done and you, you you're then grappling with well, how do I carry out this justice? It's I mean, it's fine. It's it's okay, but it it is a little bit of a bugbear. It's it's the one it's the one thing I've always been I've always consistently thought about when I finally did get around to watching it. 
uh, and watching it again, it's it's still something that I just feel it's a little bit disappointing. Mm. Uh, I just wish it had a bit of a more of a stronger, you know, punch oh, with me. Now that you mentioned it, it is yeah. what it is. <laughs> um, so for that reason, I mean, it does. It is a low. It is a low score. I give it six out of oh, ten. I guess you were going to say six. Uh, yeah, <laughs> predictable as ever. Um, but uh, but nonetheless, as I said, I still like the episode just despite that score, and I will still happily watch it. I think it just. It, because for the most part, it's you know it it works and it's a joy to watch. And at the end of the day, that you know that's what you want when you're sitting down and watching Doctor Who. You want to get, you want to have some level of enjoyment, and it, you know it's it, it's decent. Yeah. It's good. And it's like because you put that question on Twitter, uh, do you think Boomtown is good or do you think it's bad? And one of our com- uh, one of our listeners has said that if it's between those two choices. Well, it's clearly good, and I totally agree with that. If those are the two choices, do you, do you think the episode's good or bad? No, it's clearly good. Mm. You know, it's a good episode. Watch it, enjoy it. We did ask, um, yes, how would you describe it, good or bad, as a poll? Um, mm-hmm. And out of the 40 votes, uh, do you know the results, Liam? And no, no, okay, I don't 40 actually. votes, 73% in favour of it being good. Alright, okay. Well, that's, yeah, yeah, that's nice. Um, I was really interested to see um, how many haters are out there, you know? <laughs> haters <laughs> gonna hate. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, not many of them. Um, what's well, been really enjoyable talking about this. Um, I hope I provided some insight into the story, more than people might have knew, because uh, we had a look at some of the behind-the-scenes stuff. Um yeah, that was no, that was really interesting. I'm pleased you took those yeah, books out. It's been a bit thought provoking, thinking about the the whole moral dilemmas and things like that. Um any final thoughts, Liam, before we kinda of wrap it up? Uh no, I think I've said everything that I need Great. to say. <laughs> well, I'd like to thank everyone for listening and especially for everyone responding on social media. Um we really love that mm-hmm. when you get in touch um with your opinions. It's been nice revisiting the Ninth Doctor era. We have previously revisited the Long Game, I believe, um, a year or two ago. Yes, yes, yes. yes. Um, so mm-hmm. there'll be more to come within the Ninth Doctor's uh, lifetime. So, um, mm-hmm. if there's any stories you'd like us to um, kind of explore, do get in touch, and please do get in touch every week. Um, Think, what are we what are we going to discuss next week that's your choice isn't it Liam uh, yes it is it's um, so the, the story that I've chosen it's a uh, is a 10th Doctor episode there is a specific reason why I've chosen it obviously I'll explain why why um, on earth podcast, are you picking but... <laughs> you tell because I want to um, it's Smith and Jones Smith and Jones oh. good Interesting. <laughs> so yes, please get in t- please do get in touch about Smith and Jones. We are on social media. We're on Facebook.com slash Cloisterbell, Twitter at Podcast Bell, Instagram Cloister underscore Bell. We're on YouTube. Um if that was too much to take in, simply visit cloisterbellpodcast.com. All the links to social are on there and we have a wealth of previously released podcasts on there too. 
and a couple of games, uh, well, word searches at least for now. There is one quiz on there, but I would like to do another quiz actually, Liam. Do you fancy doing that too? Yeah, yeah, I do actually. Actually, in, t- in terms of the uh, the word searches, oh, I uh, the thirteenth Doctor one, it w- um, I found a bit tricky. Yeah. Oh, I've forgotten which one it was now. There, there was one word where I just uh, it took me ages to find it. It was ridiculous. But anyway, you I did enjoy, uh, did enjoy it. <laughs> we need to add rewards, possibly, <laughs> for um, people completing these. <laughs> um, well, thank you for listening, and you'll hear from us next week. <laughs> Goodbye, everyone. Bye, everyone. The cloister bell? Yes. What's that? Well, it's a sort of communications device reserved for wild catastrophes and sudden calls to man the battle stations. That's the cloister bell. Don't worry about that for now. It's not really terribly significant. The cloister bell? Oh, no.